0: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: I always had the suspicion of this idea that there's the good stuff and the bad stuff. I don't think it's like that. I think being decent is um, a process that's hard. It's like doing science or or working in technology. You have to get results. You don't necessarily know what will work.
2: Hello and welcome to the Esther Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am so thrilled by today's episode, and I also have no idea how to describe it. <laughs> uh, I spoke with Jaron Lanier, uh, which I may be saying wrong, but as you'll hear right at the beginning of our discussion, it doesn't really matter how you say it. He's considered by many to be the father of virtual reality. Uh, he coined the term. Uh, he was one of the very early creators and researchers and coders and thinkers in the space he has been behind a huge number of the advances in the space he's written a series of fantastic books criticizing technology and its role in society thinking about how technology could be better his most recent is the dawn of the new everything that is really why i wanted to talk to him i have not read a book in a long time that i found as intellectually thrilling as that one I'm not going to try to spend a bunch of time encapsulating our conversation here. Uh, I I don't know that I could do it justice, uh, but suffice to say that much like reading that book, getting an opportunity to be in his mind for a while is an incredibly fun and interesting and expanding experience. The stories he tells at the beginning of this podcast are (laughs) <laughs> they are worth the price of admission alone. You will also hear uh, he has a wonderful laugh that you'll hear quite a lot in in this. Um, he talks about a lot of serious topics with a lot of humor and an unbelievable level of intelligence and insight. So I felt very privileged to get to have this conversation with him. So without further ado, here he is. Welcome to the podcast, Jerone Lanier, <laughs> <laughs> w- w- which I pronounce that way because because you told me I could say it any way I wanted, and that there's a particular story behind why I'm allowed to say it any way I want. So, so why don't you care about the way your name is pronounced?
1: Okay. Well, if it, in in the U.S., it's usually pronounced Jaron Lanier. Uh, so the Lanier part comes from Amelia Lanier. Do you know who she was? I don't. Amelia Lanier was one of the few figures uh, who we know was uh, a friend of Shakespeare. She's the first published female author of poetry in the English language. She wrote her own sonnets, and they're almost parodies of Shakespeare in a way. They're really interesting. And she made up some of the the little phrases and uh, little little tricks that he used. They had a really interesting exchange. Now, who was Amelia Lanier? She was— the daughter in a Jewish family of traveling musicians from Morocco, who had a gig for a while in the Venice and Ghetto, and ended up with a gig with the royal family in the in in, in England, and they changed their name to. Not sound Jewish, you know, uh, so it was a way of avoiding prohibitions and anti-Semitism. And uh, my father, uh, coming to the us also wanted to change his name for exactly the same reason and chose to adopt it. Oh, that's fascinating. um so so let me go back then into some of the stories
2: you tell in in your new book. You have a story. It comes about midway through. And it only takes about four paragraphs in the book. And it is possibly the most interesting story I've ever heard any human being allude to.
1: <laughs> okay, now I'm wondering what this is. So I, I... <laughs> tell, me about,
2: tell me about tripsitting a dying Richard Feynman, the, the famous physicist, when his cancer was overtaking him and he decided that before he died, he should find out what it was like to take acid.
1: Well, I mean, that's kind of the story. Uh, he was interested in trying LSD. He'd been diagnosed with uh, cancer and had, um, I think at that time, he'd already had an operation or two. And he wanted to experiment with, with LSD. He wanted to be around uh, hippie girls, to be blunt about it. Uh, he was going to hang out at these hot tubs. Uh, but it, it wasn't Esalen. It was another place that happened to have hot tubs on a cliff above the ocean in Big Sur, <laughs> which uh, which is in a private residence that will not be disclosed. And he wanted somebody to be there who would just make sure he didn't fall off the cliff and that no one else did. And I, I was kind of known as the sort of odd young weirdo who was kind of around psychedelic culture and yet never took any drugs. And I I just had made a decision not to do anything. So I said, "Okay, Jaron's going to be the lookout to make sure nobody falls off a cliff. So I ended up just being there. There's not really a lot to tell. It was fun talking to him while he was on LSD. He, He pointed to his brain at one point and was trying to do addition. And he said, the machine's broken. And he seemed to actually get a lot of pleasure from being able to get outside of himself a little bit. He had a wonderful ability to always find joy in every setting that I ever saw him. And that was one of them.
2: What do you think it was about you that drew people into the psychedelic movement to you?
1: I had this kind of intensity about me when I was in my 20s. I had a, a probably a bit of a guru like vibe, although I never sought to be a guru. I had a way of talking about technology in the future and matters of the deepest philosophy of what a person was that I think ha- had an element in common with psychedelic culture. Had a kind of a, a numinous or um a kind of wild feeling. Uh, so that, that might have been part of it. Part of it was just um, luck of association. And in fact, I mean, one of the reasons, in fact, I, I had even gotten to know anybody was that I had a long-distance feud with Timothy Leary before I met him, um, because he, he had started to talk about virtual reality, which had gotten into the news in the mid-80s for the first time. He would started to talk about it as sort of the next psychedelic frontier. And, you know, I mean, he had just... <laughs> Created this incredible divide, or well, he hadn't created it, but he'd exacerbated a divide in American society that I, I personally didn't think was that helpful, and I, I wasn't really into him doing it with <laughs> virtual reality. So I, I'd had a running argument with him from afar in in the media that were available in those days, which were like these things called zines, which were amateur printed little newspapers and things that would be in underground bookstores. <laughs> <And laughs> Shall I tell the story of how you I met? Uh, Timothy you should Leary? definitely
2: tell the yeah. story of how you met Timothy Leary. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so um, the way I met Timothy Leary was, um, so we'd been saying we should meet for quite a while because we were having this this sort of long-distance dispute. But, I mean, it was good-natured. And so he he said— um, Can you, before you go into this, can you just explain a little bit more what the substance of your dispute was? What What was
2: his argument and what was yours that led to this meeting?
1: His argument was that we needed to completely bust apart some kind of giant— reductionist, uh, technocrat ego that was ruining everything for everybody, and we would do it with this kind of combination of arts and psychedelia and ecstatic feeling, and it would create a world of uh, beauty and wonder and peace. And I didn't feel that way exactly. I felt that, I always had the suspicion of this idea that there's the good stuff and the bad stuff, this Manichean fallacy that if you just find the bad people or the bad thoughts and then you defeat those, then everything will be great. I don't think it's like that. I think to make the world better is a bit more of a subtle, gradual activity that involves problem solving and discovery and setbacks. I think being decent is um, a process that's hard. It's like doing science or, or working in technology. You have to get results. You don't necessarily know what'll work. And I, I, I viewed decency as this long-term difficult project, not just as this banishment of whatever was wrong with the world, and then you'd enter into this sudden golden age. And so there's was just a very different sensibility. So that's essentially what we argued about. And then you and decided think, to meet. Yeah, so we decided to meet. And so this is Tim, peculiar, what happens next. Well, to you, I mean. <laughs> well, I'm a square. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so let's see. Uh, This is—when is this? This is in the mid-'80s. And I get a call from uh, Timothy, who is in L.A., and he says, Okay, I have a contract by which I'm supposed to go to the Esalen Institute and teach a class— I'm getting paid for it. I'm happy to get the money. However, I would prefer not to perform my duties. <laughs> I'm not this is not in Tim's voice. I'm I'm completely paraphrasing. He had this I wish I could he had a, a, a this wonderful kind of slightly Irish accent. Well, Darren, you know I, <laughs> I these these people, man, I, I think they're gonna be fine if I don't actually show up. I, I, something like that. And, and so uh, he there, there was this guy who was running around LA being a Timothy Leary impersonator <laughs> for his living. So he hired the Timothy Leary impersonator. And so the idea was that the real Tim would show up and start the workshop. and then I was supposed to smuggle the impersonator in in the trunk of my car. <laughs> <laughs> and then the impersonator would take over once everybody was high and would have a harder time noticing that anything had changed. And then I'd grab the real Tim, put him in the trunk of my car, and and sneak him out past the guard gate. <laughs> and then he'd split, he'd you know arrange to share the fee with the the inter, the impersonator. And so um, the first challenge is that I had this truly appalling jalopy. <laughs> was <laughs> That's a whole other story. But I had this old Dodge Dart that was riddled with bullet holes and had no back seat and had been used to move goats around. I had hay in the back. And I, what I had to do is uh, clear out the trunk, which was filled with early computers, and my friends helped me sort of create enough space in the trunk for Timothy to fit and for the impersonator. And we had to throw out some really cool old computers in this dumpster on the Stanford campus. And then I, I went down and, and did it. And I was like, terrified. I'd never done anything like this before, but it was like our little reenactment of, of uh, you know, East Berlin or something like, you know, I, I snuck Timothy out and um, that's how we met. I'm not going to go further into this
2: because I feel like I get lost in the set of stories, but I'm just going to just note for people that one of the sentences uttered there was, there was a guy living in L.A. making a living as a professional Timothy Leary impersonator, which is only to say that that the '80s, which is not not when I think of these stories, was a, a different age. But but before we move on from from that era, Hey,
1: there might still be somebody in L.A. making a living as a Timothy Leary. That sounds
2: unlikely to me. Uh, but but one thing I do want to touch on because I think it, it speaks to things in your book as well mm-hmm. is. Do you feel that compared to the conversations you were having in Silicon Valley in the 70s and the 80s, have we lost a conceptual spiritual ambition? Have we become more technocratic and lost this idea that there can be these radical transformations in human existence? And if so, is that a bad thing?
1: Yeah, well, that is the question, actually. I'm haunted by that question. I do think that There was a certain utopian spirit that got subsumed maybe by corporate marketing in Silicon Valley, where these days when you hear something's going to change the world, you just dismiss it because, you know, it's just the latest, you know, Silicon Valley cloud thing. It's said all the time and it doesn't mean anything anymore. And your question about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is a hard one to answer. As I was saying before, I'm really suspicious of utopian thinking, even though when I was younger... I was a pretty good channel for it at times. I think it's probably some sort of a, a question of balance. I think a little bit of it, especially when you're young, is a good thing. I think it's important not to take too much of the world as given. But I, you know what What I flash on when you ask that question is how um, Steve Bannon adopted the, uh, the language of sort of the left intellectuals of the same period about deconstruction. And this idea that the whole world we've been given is corrupt and must be destroyed. And then as soon as we destroy the bad things, the bad thoughts and the bad people, then everything will be great. It's the same fallacy I was talking about before. I mean, that's the danger in utopian thinking is that it can turn you into, into a pointless vandal very, very easily. So, I, I, I mean, I think the more useful thinking is to, is to think of betterment as a project. That's, that's a challenge rather than just think of the world as being annoying because we just have to get rid of the bad people and everything will be okay. If you can have just enough of a utopian feeling that you do question the world as it is and imagine how it could be better, I think that's a wonderful thing. But if you take it too far, you actually undermine yourself. So I would say like a homeopathic utopianism, I will support. I like that
2: line a lot, a homeopathic utopianism. But but, yeah. but I want to go in this idea of too much utopian thinking can turn you into a pointless vandal. You're, you're destroying mm-hmm. structures that you don't even fully understand. And on the other side, it does seem to me that Silicon Valley today, American politics today, including Steve Bannon, who's... View of the possible is still quite narrow, uh, you know, despite the aggression of his rhetoric, you know, slightly different trade relations with China and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I do wonder if we have in a consequential way lost the ability to imagine substantially different futures in ways that could keep those futures from coming or separately makes it too hard for us to imagine things that feel outside our experience that are bad happening, things like Brexit and Donald Trump and much more traumatic and
1: tremendous things beyond that. It certainly seems to me that we have suffered from a narrowing of imagination, a severe narrowing of imagination. As you might know, not too many years ago, I was still being criticized quite intensely for bringing up any point of difficulty in the online world because you were supposed to love everything about the internet. When I wrote that this idea of things going viral and sudden movements could be a bad thing because, you know, sudden mob dynamics has not always been a great thing in human history, and maybe this actually could be negative. Oh my gosh, I lost friends over that not that long ago. And imagining how things could go wrong is an absolutely essential ability. And it was just forbidden in Silicon Valley culture for a while. And I think we've gotten over that now. So maybe that's a small silver lining in how badly some things have turned out. As you might also know, I've, I've been a critic of the way economics have worked out online so far. I think the advertising model has been... Uh, expanded so greatly and has become so central that it's making society crazy and turned into something very different. And I still talk to people who just say, but there could be nothing else. It's the only possibility. There is no other option. And I just, it's a little heartbreaking, especially when a young person has that feeling that there's no other option, that we have no no degrees of freedom in something so important. I hope we'll outgrow it. I mean, that that's our only hope, actually.
2: Help me break the boundaries of that thinking, man. you You write in your book that nothing about computers is inevitable. You write about the ways in which it could have taken a different path. Just sketch out a theory or a picture of what it might have looked like had it taken a different path.
1: Well, of course, there are quite a number of different ones. There's a particular... Choice that we made that I've been thinking a lot about lately, and that is the choice to demand that everything be free, but that we still do it within the context of capitalism. Uh, so that was a huge choice that we didn't have to make, and I think it was the wrong choice. So uh, let us go back to the eighties. Uh, are you up for this one? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So back in the eighties, there was. Um, a tremendous imperative in the, the techie world of the time, uh, starting with the, the free software movement, that we shouldn't be paying for things online. It should be the ultimate democracy. It should be a socialist paradise, if you like. Code should be free. People should work as volunteers. There was tremendous idealism about that. That was just the world we should have. And, And if you tried to defy that orthodoxy, it was almost impossible. It was sort of like saying that, I don't know, I mean, you were just, it was, there was no room for any dissension during that time. And I was one of the few who got away with a little bit of dissension, just I have my meal card because of my technical abilities and achievements. That's that's ultimately, it's ultimately a meritocracy on that level, on that very narrow level. So I could get away with it a bit, but it was very hard for anybody to dispute this orthodoxy. But then there was this other orthodoxy, which is we don't want government in the middle of our affairs. We don't want that much socialism. We want capitalism. We want free enterprise. We love our Steve Jobses. We love our Bill Gates. We love we love the hero tech entrepreneur who through she- sheer will changes the world. And so you had these two idealisms that coexisted. Everything must be free, but also... We love our tech entrepreneurs. And so if you're going to have everything be free, but in a capitalist society, there's exactly one solution left, which is advertising. So everything online would be free and it'd be paid for by advertising. And so it seemed like there was a happy solution and everybody could get along. Google really sort of reified it with its business model. It was the first really big cloud company to to choose the advertising model. The problem here is that as technology improves and algorithms improve and the whole system is just trying to optimize itself, which is what happens, advertising turns into something very different than what started. It turns into behaviorism on a global scale. It turns into feedback loops that modify people's behaviors by algorithm and for pay. And once you've gone over that threshold, you really make society insane, which is exactly what I believe has happened here.
2: So, but I think that you walked right up to the precipice of describing the alternative here and didn't quite get there. So, I want to I take us back. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, at a certain point, we forked in the road and we have Google and we have Facebook and Twitter and all these different things that are an advertising model. Talk to me about what a digital world would look like that hadn't taken that path that was based on payment or authorship or mm-hmm. whatever it might have been.
1: Well, there's not just one alternative, but but... But to just imagine one uh, yeah. alternative. But in a ima- well, for instance, let's suppose that you were asked to pay a very small modest fee to use Facebook every month. Kind of like the way you might pay to use Netflix or something like that. But then let's also suppose that since you're contributing If you happen to be super successful and you get a lot of notice and a lot of people uh, care about what you're doing, all of a sudden you'd make money from it. And there might be a rather significant class of people who actually make their living directly from that, from royalties for being really effective on Facebook. They'd be a minority of the Facebook user population, but they'd be a significant class of creative people who are making a living instead of being displaced by robots, you know? <laughs> and and uh, that to me seems like a very plausible, economically sound future. And by the way, uh, for the first time, there's going to be a session at the American Economics Association meeting on the economics of this potential future. It's finally starting to gain some notice in the mainstream economics community. There's some problem solving left to do about exactly how it would work, exactly how the algorithms would work to decide how much somebody gets paid and all kinds of little questions. But there's no theoretical barrier to this future existing. And so if we entered into a future that looked like that, I think there are two major benefits. One is there'd be more people who aren't being put out of work by, by improvements in computer science. But a second thing is that, and this is a little subtle, there would be some other additional incentive structure other than the pure grab for attention in the online world for online people. You know?
2: But is that is that true? I mean, I think of what you're talking about, and while I understand that there's a subscription payment would be a different input of the payment, it doesn't sound that different from on the other side for the creators, say what a YouTube does. But but to get paid on on the YouTube platform, it is also a, you know a huge attention grab.
1: Well, the thing about the way YouTube pays people is they do it in a, a sort of a communist party way. There's a central a central bureaucracy that sets. Its own arbitrary decisions about who will get paid and how. It's not really an open marketplace. And so the distribution of rewards in it are narrower, I believe, than they would be in an open marketplace. So fewer people are benefiting. And also, the people who get paid serve the purposes of Google, which are not necessarily terrible. I'm not saying that's a great evil, but it's not a sort of an open marketplace where new purposes can emerge. So I I would say what Google's doing counts, although it's at least a step in the right direction.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: If we weren't doing this grab for attention, what would we build on? What what would be ways to reward creators that would push for something that isn't just getting a lot of eyeballs?
1: Well, just before I go there, can I just say, aside from trying to have a stable economy where people can make their way instead of everybody having to go on the government dole eventually, aside from that, there's another benefit to having some way that— creators are paid. And I really want to emphasize by creator, I don't mean some elite person who lives in a coastal city. I mean anyone, anywhere who gets a following online for any reason. And the reason why is that right now, you basically have people who are either trying to get attention from themselves online or people who are putting money into the system as so-called advertisers to try to change the world in some way. And in both cases, the motivations are emphasizing what I'd call negative emotions over positive ones. If you want to get attention for yourself, it's easier to get attention if you scare people or annoy them or make them jealous or something like that. And so you you tend to have this uh, incentive structure that brings out the ass in people. You know, you have a lot of people acting out like kids online and a kind of a, a mean environment overall, a hostile environment. And, and what I'll observe is whenever there's an online... System in which there's some other incentive that coexists with the drive for attention. It doesn't even matter what it is, that diversity kind of makes people better because it just opens up other possibilities. LinkedIn is an example. It's a it's a big social network that doesn't have a lot of the uh, hostile fabricated news. It doesn't have a lot of uh, bullying and ganging up on people or you know, sh- weird kinds of shaming. And the reason is just simply that there's this other incentive that coexists with everything else where people are furthering their careers. So at least they have something else to do. And I think that really opens things up a lot. It's so simple. But on Facebook, it's not clear there is anything else for most people on it. And so you tend to end up in these sort of infantile games of attention getting uh, through negativity.
2: Well, there's also the more deep-seated human game of showing which tribe you're in, of ascending in status within your tribe, of of Mm -hmm. showing that you have the right opinions. And one thing I struggle with when I think about these critiques of our digital world is... Are these critiques of the UI we're using and the platforms and how they're built and how they're designed and how they're financed, or are they critiques of human nature, of what it is like when people live in big communities, of what high school was like, which it was not uh, great for me. Junior high was not great for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And sometimes I wonder if part of the optimism of people who grew up not loving social dynamics was this hope that technology would solve it but that it's actually human nature and and communal nature that can be the problem.
1: Well, I'll tell you my working theory of this, and I'm not claiming I know that this is definitely true, (laughs) but my working hypothesis is uh, that people have um, a bistable nature where we can function either as individuals or as pack members. And there are other species that are clearly like this, and a wolf comes to mind. You have a lone wolf or a wolf pack. And Uh, Roughly speaking, when people act as individuals, they tend to overall be better uh, in a society. uh, And that might seem contradictory. You might think that human society should be all about PACs, but actually it's the opposite. To the degree people become PACs, the PACs then get into conflicts and people judge each other according to the PAC dynamic. And decency in society suffers, So I think uh, systems that bring out the individual aspect of people instead of the PAC member aspect of people tend to create a better overall environment for everybody. And that's, I think, one of the basic reasons that a genuinely open and uh, creative capitalist market can actually create a more decent society, even though it might seem as though it would just be sort of chaotic and lead to the dominance of the fittest. It's exactly when things turn into... Uh, packs when 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 things coalesce into opposing groups, that the worst in people comes out, um, and unfortunately, uh, because our digital world has focused so much on just trying to corral people to make them modifiable by the so-called advertisers who are paying to modify their behavior. The most efficient way to do that is to corral them into packs and then to get them upset with the alternative packs so it just makes society more and more negative and disrupts things more and more and more because that's just the the best business plan if that's your fundamental incentive.
2: What do you think are the things that could be done to make people act more like individuals in these big digital
1: communal settings? Well, I think the most powerful place to address outcomes is to look at the incentives that exist. And then after we talk about incentives, then we can talk about all other, all kinds of other things, potentially regulation or how we talk about things or all, or all sorts of things. But the current incentive structure is a really terrible one. The incentive structure is to maximize what we call engagement, which is just a sanitized way of talking about addiction. And we've adopted the tricks that were learned over many decades by behaviorists of how to addict people with uh, feedback loops. And then in order to keep them and manipulate them, we engender negative emotions and not through some evil plan, but just that turns out to be the the most efficient use of the tools we have. So it just happens naturally, and then the customers we attract to use it tend to be the most unsavory people in the world: the weird, you know, information warriors from hostile countries, or organized crime, you know, or just um, idiots. So we have a terrible, terrible incentive structure, and if the incentive structure rewarded individuals, then I think you'd see individuals being themselves instead of being PAC members. And that's the reason why I think people should be paid for what they do online. They would have a chance to be rewarded as individuals, and so the incentive structure would turn around. And if the big tech companies were earning royalties on having rewarded the individuals who contributed the most to a network, then those companies would have an incentive structure that encourages individual behavior instead of PAC behavior, which overall is better That's not to say it's perfect. There's still people, but it's better.
2: So let me tell you what this is making me think about and and, and tell a quick story here. So my beginning, uh, my entrance into (laughs) the digital journalism world is through blogging. I was one of the very early bloggers. I I started a a blog on Blogspot in 2003. And I had my own blog until, you know, roughly I became a professional journalist uh, in late 2005 And, you know, I gave up sort of what I would think of as a personal blog in 2009 when I went to the Washington Post. And in that period, blogging was this very human thing. And the way you got bigger was you got links from other people. And the way you kept readers was they had to bookmark you when they came back. Um, And so you were building something that they had to really like and had to make affirmative choices pretty much all the time to come and see. Either they had to put you in an RSS reader or travel to you, whatever it might have been. And I felt like I was a very authentic version of myself as a blogger, that that it was a very humanizing thing for me, for my audience, for the people I was reading. You know, I would put recipes up. It it had a, a very rounded dimension to it. And then as I began writing in the social era and also in a more professionalized way, I felt who I was become flattened because I was writing to achieve pretty big scale. I was writing to make sure that the um, big um, advertising uh, supported institutions behind me weren't embarrassed. And it just it was just more professional. Uh, you know, what I wrote on was more limited. Um, it was only things I really had the authority to speak on or thought I could have the authority to speak on. and. I really lost any sense of myself as a, a human in my relationship with my audience. And funnily enough, the thing that has brought it back is actually podcasting. And I was trying to think of why that was, why I'm comfortable in podcasting. You know, having this conversation or a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Robert Wright about Buddhism and mindfulness, even if maybe 70% of my interviews are political, 30% are just things that I'm interested in that are non-political and are not really associated with my professional persona as I consider it. And I think the reason is, again, it's subscription once more, that I have to have people actually come back, that they have to make an affirmative decision. They're not just going to see it because it's shared around by an audience that doesn't know me and doesn't have any context for me on social media. And so even though I'm not sure how different the economics are, my podcast is advertising-supported, as um, are my articles for Vox, as are my articles for The Washington Post, I do think the way people find you really, really changes what you feel able to do for them and do with them. The degree to which people are choosing to engage with me on a podcast is different than people who are not choosing to see what I have done on Facebook. They're just getting it shared by a friend. Um, and, and, and it does really change the way I find I act, even though I'm the same person doing the work in in, in under both conditions.
1: I have also had that experience. I think the podcast world is, in general, a more humane and beautiful world right now than a lot of others online. Uh, part of the reason why is that the podcast format doesn't lend itself as easily to being mashed up and sort of subsumed by some meta service by one of the bigger companies. So, uh, you, it's hard to do sort of like a stream of podcast excerpts that people would use that would subsume the original podcast context to where somebody wouldn't have to think about you individually, but would just sort of, hey, I'll just listen to my podcast meta feed today. That sort of thing hasn't come together. If it did, then you'd be back where you were. Uh, but that's that's been the problem with um, tweets and even videos and many other things. But it, the, the podcast... Uh, hasn't yet—nobody's figured out a way to to do that, to subsume it into some metaform. So it still exists as a personal expression. So. Well, I think a, a thing related to that
2: is this idea—and maybe you're
1: gesturing this—of mm-hmm.
2: context collapse, where mm-hmm. when you write a tweet, uh, something that will happen is maybe you imagine it being read by your community, but very quickly it's found by somebody who doesn't like you or doesn't know you. Then it's retweeted out to the community who really doesn't like you or doesn't know you, and all of a sudden— Uh, what needs a generous interpretation or what needs a contextual interpretation doesn't have any of that around it. And it just becomes, you know, the, the, the wolves are at the door. So you become more protected. You become more careful. I don't really know why, because you could certainly come onto a podcast and pull something somebody said out of context. But because these are long and they're involved and, you know, you have to subscribe to get them, people don't really seem to do that. So I am willing to try out ideas here and say things that are not fully thought through and make a mistake in how I say something in a way that I am absolutely not willing to do in other places where there's a lot more drive-by reading or watching or whatever it might be. So it's much then easier for people to look for things to take out of context. Something Mm. about the way the community is formed and the investment you actually have to put in to even be this far into this conversation, and we're going to go way further, (laughs) um, seems to really, really change the communal dynamics. And as such, Mm -hmm. fosters a sense of, I don't want to say security, that's too far, but but openness, I, I have a fundamental belief, even if someday it might be proven wrong, that people who hear me say something wrong here are going to be a little bit generous because they've heard me speaking as a human a lot. And I don't have that when I'm just writing for a, a mass audience.
1: Well, there's a, um, a very simple little practical matter, which is that there isn't any way to present an initial glimpse of a podcast and just say a few seconds to get somebody engaged and then combine it with a bunch of other glimpses. Whereas you can do that with frames from a video, you can do that with tweets because they're small. Uh, the things that are subsumed give you that quality where you can give somebody a very quick experience of it, and then and subsume it into a stream or collection of those things to make a, a meta or collage or mashup of them. And the the audio, the pure audio form doesn't really give you that. Uh, Hearing takes time. You can see a single frame much more quickly. It's just a, you know, one of the benefits of sound. Um, But can can I uh, go to one thing you said about um, how when context collapses, meaning changes? Yes, and, and you're not. So um, this was a topic I'd written about in a book called uh, "You're Not a Gadget" some years ago, and I was so criticized for that idea. People, what my friends in Silicon Valley would say is, "No, no, no, we're improving the context because we'll find the people who really understand you, and our algorithms will really give you the ideal context." And um, but I think your description of what happens is precisely correct. Uh, w- without context, the meaning really kind of shifts, and in fact, it's even gotten worse. What what I've observed. Is that um, when there's one community of shared meeting uh, of shared meaning uh, in an online context, particularly in social media, um, that whole body of shared meaning will be applied specifically so that the opposite meaning comes out because that maximizes profits. And I, I realize I'm sounding like some some weird new media professor here for a second. So can, can I, I want to break this down for a second. Is that okay? Please. All right. Um, it's a podcast. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, for those who don't know, I'm running around the studio naked right now, but you can't tell. So um, I'm going sh- to tell you about a series of online social movements that initially seemed tremendously positive and hopeful, but then engendered follow-ups or backlashes that were disproportionately mean-spirited and negative by historical standards and utterly ruined everything. So I'll start with the Arab Spring, which, um, Uh, And I don't want to say that technology was the only thing involved, but a big part of the Arab Spring was a bunch of young people in the Arab world having access to online communications for the first time and coordinating and uh, overthrowing horrible regimes. And there was this wave of incredible hopefulness around the world and incredible pride in Silicon Valley where we'd call it the, you know, we'd call one of these uh, things the Facebook revolution or the Twitter revolution. And then shortly thereafter, the same sorts of social Social media tools seem to more serve recruiting purposes for the most horrific terrorists and the most awful, just the most awful things, and it all fell apart. It all came to nothing. And in fact, uh, arguably, uh, the region didn't gain anything from it, except maybe in a few isolated places. And even there, it's very questionable. It might be worse off. Um, then, uh, there was a movement of women in the gaming world to try to improve their situation, which was dismal, and this led to a remarkable overreaction, which is known as Gamergate, which then turned into the prototype for the alt-right, um, and then, uh, we had Black Lives Matter, and Black Lives Matter initially, to me, seemed like an articulate and, um, kind of remarkably measured and uh, compassionate approach to a very severe problem and I was I was kind of moved by it but the reaction to it was one that was remarkable it uh, it uh, an online organized force in response to it suddenly has kind of normalized uh, a, a kind of racism and neo-fascism that's just horrifying and it's just like ambient now and somehow we live with it um, and so what do all these things have in common? So so my view of what goes on here is that you start out with a body of people who are pouring energy into these online systems like social media. And remember, it's the data that comes from people, uh, even though it's currently unpaid and it's unacknowledged and it's just like it puts them in the second, gla- second class barter role. But that is the fuel that runs these companies. It is the only resource they have. So this fuel comes in, this resource comes in, and then the company's job is to maximize the benefit. from a very narrow perspective of using this fuel. How can they make money from it? How can they maximize engagement? And so if you have a bunch of people who are like trying to do something positive, Arab kids trying to improve their world or women trying to improve their world in gaming or uh, Americans trying to not get shot at police stops for no reason, any of these movements— somehow online, you'll find the people who react negatively to it because the negative emotions are more powerful. And then you'll introduce those people to each other, and then you'll start to get them all riled up and stir the pot, and that maximizes their engagement. And because, unfortunately, negative emotions are the more powerful ones, the negative counterforce ends up getting more power online than the original positive force. And so, you know, in history, I believe we've seen legitimately this arc where, when people agitate to improve society, even though there are periodic setbacks and counter reactions, overall things kind of get better over time. But recently, since social media came on, uh, we've we've seen everything just turn to shit. I mean, it's really remarkable. Every time somebody seems to make progress, then the backlash is actually much more powerful than the initial. Uh, the initial progress, which is not historically typical, uh, so you know, so I can make a prediction. I'll make this science, so we'll see if I'm right. The current Me Too movement will will be apl- because it's so social media centric, will result in a similar sort of overwhelming negativity. But it, it seems to take about a year to work through the system. So, and I don't know what it'll look like. Nobody can know, but somehow the algorithms and the attention seeking people will work together. To find some way to turn it into something terrible in about a year. Well, it's certainly my
2: observation that the most powerful motivators online are outrage and group threat. Mm-hmm. They're not the only ones. People share That's things right. for lots of reasons, but there isn't anything as consistent as outrage and group threat.
1: That's absolutely correct. And and so and so it, it's not so much that there's some. Evil genius sitting somewhere in Silicon Valley saying, ah, we're going to ruin the world. It's just that as a matter of rote optimization, as an almost robotic affair, um, you discover the most engaging negative emotions and the most... uh, Addictive patterns. That's another thing. There's a, there's a, there's in the science of behaviorism, uh, we've learned that slightly inconsistent feedback is more engaging than perfect feedback. And so there are other principles like that. But anyway, you combine manipulation and feedback. You select naturally, not out of any ill intent, the most negative emotions. And then you engage people by ruining society. And that is the current business model.
2: So this is a good bridge. I think, to some of your broader theories about human-centric computer design, virtual reality. I take a lot of what we're talking about here to speak to the way in which the internet currently rewards simplifying, reducing uh, everyone down to a clear, intense unit Mm -hmm. that can be sort of understood, um, you know, a Facebook profile can be understood. What you're trying to present for it can be understood. A tweet is almost like the perfect example of this. Now it's 280 characters, but, but previously, can you get what you were saying down so simply that it can fit in 140 characters? And a lot of your works seem to me to have the quality of looking for ways to design digital interactions that make us more complex and weird and in some ways inscrutable, in some ways more messily human. I'd like to hear you just talk more about that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's not so much that I wish to add a degree of inscrutability that isn't there, but I wish to honestly accept the reality of the inscrutability that is there. And uh, this is <laughs> this is a, a bit of a subtle point, Um when you work with information technology, you tend to start to dismiss and then eventually disbelieve in whatever can't be represented by information technology. And indeed, there might be some people who are listening who are saying, "But anything can be represented by information technology, can't it?" <laughs> you know, and and no, it can't actually. Um, and uh, there's there's so many levels at which to address this. I mean, one thing is, um, I think it's helpful to to think of people as being somewhat mystical objects in the sense that we can experience the world, that we're we're something beyond mechanism. And if I say that, it sometimes elicits a criticism that I'm being superstitious or supporting religious people who want to promote an agenda or promoting um, um, ideas about life after death or something like that. But I'm really not doing any of those things. All I'm doing is pointing out that uh, I do experience the world and that, that that center of experience is something different from what I can measure with instruments in the lab. It's a different channel of knowing. Um, one of my favorite things about virtual reality is that it highlights the existence of experience. Uh, so so let, let me, can I explain what I mean by that? You absolutely can. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see if I can. <laughs> sometimes these things are a little difficult to get I should across. I should have said, can you? Yeah, yeah, well, we'll we'll see. It'll be up to the listener to judge, I guess. Um, With most information technology designs, like let's say a Facebook page, if somebody dies, the Facebook page can stay up, and and they often do, and people can continue to post to it. And indeed, um, there's almost this fetish with trying to create simulated after-death versions of people now. There's a Defense Department-funded project to create uh, sort of simulated continuations of soldiers who've died for their families, which I think is not a great idea, actually. Uh, There are these uh, so-called holograms of of performers who've died on stage and and many other examples. But now, let's say in virtual reality, you can enter into a world in which everything has changed. Uh, The the sky might be made of diamonds and uh, you might be swimming through uh, a sea of... um, of jellyfish and uh, the jellyfish. I don't know. I mean, I could just go on. Like, it's anything you can make up. But um, those who aren't more familiar with the virtual reality experience might not realize that you can also change your body. It turns out that there's quite a bit of plasticity in the, um, the way the brain understands the body, which is probably a result of how it evolved through so many bodies to get to us over hundreds of millions of years. But if you tell the brain that you're a jellyfish, if you you're, you look down at your body and you're a jellyfish, or you look in a virtual mirror and you're a jellyfish, and you can move the jellyfish, and you, you can, strangely, you can become this thing, your body as far as you're concerned, has transformed. It's it's my favorite experience, possibly, in virtual reality. Um, so now you can change the world. You can change your body. That's a lot. You can change the way the passage of time works. You can change the logic of the world. You can do so many exotic things. And yet somehow floating in there, there's this thing that remains from before. There's like some constant there that that you are. There's this you that's floating in the midst of all this change, what is that thing? Well, that's experience. Um, or you could call it consciousness if you like. The terminology is fraught, and it's it's difficult to speak well about this. But, but nonetheless, we can speak about it. There's something that remains floating in this changing world. And, um, you know, you can't keep it running if the person dies because it's fundamentally interactive. It only exists in life. Otherwise, it, it goes away. Um, and so... There's a way in which virtual reality highlights or proves that consciousness exists. It's just the opposite of what technology is usually designed to do. When we're asked to talk to our phones or to some, some gadget that's sitting on the counter, we're asked to accept a kind of an equivalence between us and the machine. And people tend to accept that after a while, just out of habit. They start to think of themselves as being machine-like, and then they're willing to act in cogs for these giant schemes like uh, social media. But with virtual reality, I think you have a chance at least to feel yourself as an individual in a remarkable way. Um, And I think that's its greatest gift, perhaps.
2: So there are a lot of ways to go with this, but, but let me try this one. What you are saying, and when I read it in your book, has a very Buddhist dimension to it. There's very much a everything around you can be changed. And there is the mindfulness of your own experience at the center of it. And yet that can be true for anything. It can be true for how you use Facebook. It can be true for how you take a walk. It can be true with how you argue with someone on Twitter. And one of my fears about all of these things, and and it's a fear I have about virtual reality too, is that we are very good and programmers are very good at creating experiences to pull you out of that mindfulness of the experience, to pull you out of watching and having... Any kind of separation from stimuli and and, and reaction, I, I can imagine the virtual reality experiences that would be there to help you realize that there is something at the center of things that is you. But I can much more easily imagine the virtual reality experiences that will be there to make you forget that at the center of things there's you. Much yeah. in the way that a lot of the internet seems to me to have developed to help you forget that at the center of the experience there's you, and instead to just have you sort of flowing down the stream of stimuli and reaction.
1: Yes, you're absolutely correct about that. So everything I just said about virtual reality is true, and yet I can also say something else that's just as true and rather disheartening, which is that a virtual reality machine is intrinsically the most efficient um, behaviorist Box. It's the most efficient Skinner box. You're measuring as much as possible a, about a person, and you're stimulating everything the person can perceive, and so you have the idea the ideal situation to make the most manipulative and in a way the creepiest possible technology, um, and that is absolutely so. And so, um, you know, this has always been the trick uh, <laughs> that any any approach to trying. Any, any any approach to trying to be honest with oneself and trying to be clear-minded can can absolutely be misapplied and can have the opposite result. Uh, this is, I, I mean, not, not to put too fine a point of it, but some very horrible people have done horrible things in the name of Buddhism as they have for many other wonderful human pursuits, right? So we don't get guarantees. Uh, we, we have to, uh, I think, just... The path to trying to become decent is actually hard. It's like hard science. like you have to try to figure out in what ways you might be fooling yourself in what ways somebody might be trying to fool you. You have to sometimes deal with trade-offs where there's no perfect solution and like you have to engage with that process it just in order to be decent at all. And uh, virtual reality doesn't relieve you of that. Um, all I'm pointing out is that it does have this potential beauty to it, just like language does, or just like music does. So let me express a fear
2: about this that I've, I've talked about with other people on the podcast, but I think you're probably really the right person to talk about it with, <laughs> which is people here have heard me say that, that I don't believe in the AI dystopia where we create artificial intelligence that tries to wipe us out. Not saying it can't happen, but but it's not something I spend a lot of time worrying about. But I do worry about the ready player one dystopia, where people end up living these sort of addicted lives in virtual reality machines because doing that is better and more pleasurable um, than, you know, a more grim kind of low-wage labor existence. And so we end up in this kind of universal basic income world with everybody hooked into. What's essentially a hyper-advanced world of Warcraft all day. And and one of the things I think about when I imagine that world is that there are a lot of ways in which the economics of virtual reality and of consumer electronics generally look to me like the economics of drugs— Uh, These things can be addictive. The people making them try to make them more addictive. They think hard about what would make something addictive to to the population. I'm amazed at how addicted I am to Twitter, to Facebook, to checking my email, to things that aren't even quite very encompassing uh, human behaviors. Mm -hmm. And with drugs, when people make them more and more and more addictive, society for better and for worse, reacts by trying to make them harder and harder and harder to get. But with consumer electronics, as people make things more and more addictive, society responds by applauding them, putting putting them on magazine covers, giving them tons of money. And so we are going to have these things that are going to advance very, very, very rapidly. Um, And the people making them are going to try their best to pull folks out of, quote unquote, real life and into their virtual lives as much as possible and there's no societal immune system to that. In fact, we we celebrate it. But I'm not sure that we have the mental hardware. And I say this for myself too, to resist it at a certain point.
1: Hmm. Well, okay. So, <laughs> first of all, I mean, I think you're right. It's a it's a it's one of the challenges. Um, I, there, there's a few different levels at which to talk about this. Um, I guess. The first thing I want to do is just um, confirm the degree of problem that exists. Uh, I um, I still kind of have my meal card in Silicon Valley, despite of all the things I of all the things I say, and so I'm I'm in these conversations sometimes, and I hear people who've done extremely well and have a lot of influence in Silicon Valley say things that just send me reeling because they're just so appalling. And so, a fairly typical line of conversation lately has gone something like this: Well, you know. Um, Automation is coming, and a whole lot of people are going to be thrown out of work. Many, many millions of people, many hundreds of millions, because they won't be driving anymore. They won't be doing so many other things. We think we can have our algorithms be better teachers, better nurses all evenly sort of supposedly safe human-centric things, or in the worst case, we'll only need a little bit of human labor to cover the rough spots of the algorithms. But So the question is, what to do with all these people? And, And a lot of them have been saying, you know, this opioid addiction crisis in the U.S. has come up at just the right time, because actually it'll be easier for everybody if a lot of the people who aren't needed are just sedated all the time like this is actually positive do people really say that to you yeah i've heard that more a number of times it's a, it's a sort of an internal talking point that comes up yeah i've heard that and um i mean i always fight it but yeah sure i've heard it i'm not saying everybody says it but i'm saying there's there's, a, it's a sort of thing that one hears, and one definitely Sorry, hears I'm that completely flabbergasted that yeah, a know, human being I would know. make this comment to another human being. Um, yeah, and I don't want to name the specific people who've done it, but they're known names, you know, and. Uh, <laughs> And 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 similarly, with the idea of the technology being addictive, of, of using the various techniques like noisy feedback, um, which is what's used in gambling to make gambling addictive, um, of using these things to addict people to information systems, it's a very similar argument that we need to have the people sort of just in some sort of a spot where they're not going to just burn everything down once they don't have jobs. And then um, the basic income model is thought of as a kind of a a main, it's, it's kind of like in the Matrix movies, you know, it's just like this way to maintain this population of people who aren't doing anything and aren't needed. Now, the the, the first thing I want to say is that um, this assertion that there'll be this automation and people won't be needed is a total lie. And uh, the easiest way I've found to try to illustrate that is an example I've perhaps overused a bit, but with your permission, I'd like to restate it here, which is my example of people who translate languages. Sure. Um, so... Uh, there's a world of people who translate between languages like, say, English and Chinese and German, and they translate our various books and everything. And those people have uh, suffered a massive decrease in their profits and livelihoods. It's very similar to what's happened to professional journalists and recording musicians and photographers. Um, It's approximately decimation. It's about a tenth of what it was. Um, And the reason why is that a lot of them used to— Earn their daily living mostly by just uh, translating little memos and things like that. Not so much uh, literature, which doesn't pay that well to translate. And so now you can get these free little memo translations from Google or Bing. And I think the services are great. I think the idea that there's a service out there where you can get a usable translation of a of a memo or an email or something, and just have it right away is a fantastic thing. I'm not I'm not at all opposed to the service existing. I'm fascinated by the algorithms, it's all great. But the thing is, um, in order to do it... we have to run around and steal tens of millions of example phrases from real people who are doing translations without asking their permission, without informing them that it's happened and certainly without paying them. And we have to do that, that theft of tens of millions of phrases every single day to keep up with the changes in language due to public events and, and uh, pop culture events. And just, just the way it just, it's a language is a changing creature. It's different every day. And so, We can do it, but only through massive theft. And so these people are still needed, but we're telling them they're not needed. And the only reason we're telling them they're not needed is to maintain this fantasy that we're building a giant electronic brain to replace them, when in fact we aren't. What we're really doing is creating a new channel for them to give value to others. And then in order to say, well, why should we pay them? We make more money if we don't pay them. Well, that's fake too, because... We're not even getting paid for the translations. They're just more service for the, you know, more more grist for the advertising business plan. So it's like we've we've trapped ourselves in this bizarre zero-sum thinking that if you bring commerce to something, it just makes it worse because people have to pay for things. Whereas, in fact, we used to believe in a non-zero world where if you brought commerce to things, the economy would grow and people would get more creative and everybody would get richer. But we've lost that basic idea about markets when it comes to the online world. We only think in negative ways, and but mostly we lie to people. We tell them they're not needed when they are. So if we're telling all these people, oh, you have to go on drugs and become addicted and go on basic income because you're not needed, but we actually need them. I mean, isn't that some kind of a fundamental crime? It just really, really bothers me. Uh, I think it should bother you. I was thinking while well, you we've been having these last couple
2: of exchanges about something we said earlier, which is... There's a real pull towards negative emotions online and in conversations. So we're talking a lot about the the dystopias here, but I want to balance it out because what was really thrilling to me about reading your book was the imagining of things that virtual reality and and other tech advances could do to help us enlarge our experience of the world that, that I had never thought of. And we began talking about it when you were talking about looking in a virtual system and seeing yourself as a jellyfish. But the big shift change in my thinking after reading your book was the idea that what is interesting about virtual reality is not where it can put you, but what it can make you. That it is the body you inhabit and the things you can do, not the sort of surrounding world around you. Um, That's much more a way of re-experiencing yourself than it is a way of playing a video game. And so I'm I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk through, can you just describe for those of us who have not had an experience like that, what it is like to inhabit a different body in virtual reality in in as much detail as you can?
1: (laughs) I will try. I mean, one of the wonderful things about virtual reality is that it is bringing new things into commonality between people that actually can't be captured by language or by any other medium, by video or... And is virtual reality good enough to do that now? uh, At times it is. At times it even was in the 80s. It isn't necessarily so for the virtuality that's on sale at a consumer level, unfortunately. But I think maybe once in a while it is. Um, I, one of my pleasures lately is highlighting the the good work of some of the younger VR designers. So maybe I'll I'll take an uh, an opportunity to do that. Uh, Chris Milk has a virtuality experience called "The Story of Us," and i th- I think it's not available for easy download because he wants this is what we were talking about before about context he doesn't want it to become just another thing in a store that you download along with a bunch of other things in a row so he has more curated experiences where people come to a place to experience it and it's a it's an it's a one of these things where your body changes and you turn into different creatures in the course of evolution and this experience of, of feeling your own body shift into something else is um it's remarkable on another on a number of levels. For one thing, it's you're experiencing a kind of a plasticity or potential in your brain that you haven't experienced before. So there's something really fundamental and vivid about discovering this thing your brain can do that you had no idea it could do. And it goes pretty far. I mean, like um, we originally discovered this possibility just through bugs and, you know, sort of buggy avatars in the 80s. But in exploring it further, we've discovered, for instance, that you can control more limbs than you have naturally just by mapping from measurement of your real physical limbs to the alternate limbs. Um, The kinds of bodies that you seem to be best at inhabiting are the ones that the brain has controlled in the past hundreds of millions of years through the phylogenetic tree. So in a sense, it's deep time travel for the brain. It's the brain remembering the other creatures it descended through. Uh, to a degree, sometimes you, it turns out you can control really weird creatures that don't resemble anything from the past. And in that case, we can think of it as the pre-adaptation of the brain for future creatures that might evolve hundreds of millions of years from now. Um, uh, changes to the body that are fairly recent are remarkably easy for the brain to recapture. For instance, we had tails not that long ago. And um, if you give people a tail in virtual reality... and In order to have the tail, you have to have some way to control it, which might be Uh, from measuring little bits of other aspects of your body that would move with the tail, like the way your lower back moves or the way your thighs move. But you can give people a long tail and very rapidly, they'll be whipping that tail around and hitting targets and like just becoming virtuoso tail owners. And so it's like the brain is, oh yeah, that thing, where's that, where's that been? (laughs) I I missed that thing. And um, and so that effect's been replicated, but the most famous reference is probably Mel Slater's work from University College London. But you can You can find many uh, replications of it. And so you suddenly discover that there's this plasticity to your physical being, which is a big part of you. And that translates into a cognitive plasticity, too, which is a little harder to um, get across with words. But um, I'll give you two examples. Um, One is that there's a remarkable thing if you take one of these virtual bodies that's non human and you control it through two people instead of one. So you're mapping aspects of two different people's body into one one sort of creature that they experience simultaneously as a sort of a two-headed thing or something. Um, there's this incredible way that you start to feel a connection to someone else's sensory motor loop that's really intimate and powerful and and fresh and different and, and amazing um, and, and not not widely experienced as yet. And I think it'll be a hit. Uh, whenever people get around to it. Um, and you ask, can it be corrupted? Can it be used for power mongering or corruption or bringing out the worst in people? Yeah, probably. I mean, I haven't figured out how to do it, but somebody probably will. Anything people do can be corrupted. I mean, that's, you know, what I've been saying is that being decent is a science. It's it's a challenge. Um, but a, a, another example uh, started out for me with um, improvising at the piano. When a, when a jazz player improvises at the piano, the player has to solve all these math problems about how to lead voices and how to make things work. And if you take a jazz player and you put them in another context where they just have to work out the same math problems on paper or through visual diagrams, they can do it, but it takes them a lot longer. So there's some way that this uh, body wisdom actually can connect to abstract thinking and can be really fast and fluid. And that to me is really, really interesting because it might tell us what the future of programming is like. It might tell us um, about a future form of expression that includes well, you know, programming, that includes dynamics. And, and that's extremely exciting to me. And oh, my God, I could go on and on. I mean, there's there are these revelations, but I feel like ta- I must sound like a bit of a nut talking about them because the only way to really convey them is to share the experience with someone.
2: Well, unfortunately, we're going we're gonna to have to just keep talking about them, uh, <laughs> at least here. But let me ask you about one thing that's an interesting tension to me, which is that you, across your books, are quite critical around the way the internet has trended towards anonymity and the way that has unleashed people to be quite problematic versions of themselves online. And yet you're very hopeful about the way virtual reality might allow us to experience each other and communicate with each other as avatars. And one could imagine an avatar being able to appear in any shape you want, as in some ways a much more destructive form of anonymity or, or a different kind of toxicity. Why are you more optimistic about one than the other?
1: Well, um... You know the problem with anonymity online is uh, what you called, I think, very what your your, your excellent term of a contextual collapse. Where, uh,
2: I want to say not my, my term. It's a wonderful term, and I forgot
1: whose it is, but I don't want to take credit. Okay. I mean, maybe it was even mine. I don't know, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but but it's certainly it's an important idea. It's not so much that when you become anonymous online, you become this totally blank slate with no qualities, with a pure voice. Instead, what happens is you're given a voice and identity by a context that's determined by some central algorithm or some mob or something like that. So it's not so much that you're anonymous, but it's, you're given a false identity. Um, now, uh, could that happen with people turning into avatars? Absolutely. There's, there's no question. As, as I've, as I never tire of saying, VR has the potential to be the creepiest invention of all time. It really does because it can potentially be the most intimately manipulative invention. Um, so it, it, it maxes out both the potential for beauty and meaning and for um, creepiness and and lying. Uh, it 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 is a challenge. That That's the right way to understand it. Both are very true. It's not one thing or the other. It's both.
2: You, uh, you, you write about in the book the work of Jeremy, I might get his name wrong, Balanson? Jeremy Balanson from Stanford, sure. Um, who writes about how... People perceive each other differently when their avatars change and and you note that literally in a virtual world somebody 's social status rises when their avatar becomes taller
1: yeah isn 't that horrible that 's a replicable effect you can um, You can put people in um, negotiating sessions in in a virtual world and change their roles and, and the outcomes by their relative height and it's it 's sickening, but it 's so um, I think there 's some hope. That you could use virtuality as a way to people for people to become aware of this aspect of themselves, so as to uh, uh, control it a bit or, or uh, to lessen its hold. And there are many other creepy things. We can make people more racist. We can make people more cruel. We can make people less caring and less willing to. Well, you know, I mean, this isn't unique to virtuality. There are famous experiments like the Milgram experiment where people accepted instructions to torture others just to fit in. Uh, so you know, people are malleable and they they can succumb. To tricks that will manipulate them, uh, but also people are capable of self-insight. They're capable of having uh, greater um, abilities to be moral and to control their actions and to understand what they're doing. I mean, that's also a potential. It, both, both things are true,
2: right? You could imagine you could imagine it being easier to have people run their own experiments, right, where they operate in a virtual re- world with different demographic characteristics than they typically have and just see how people respond to them.
1: Yeah. I mean, this gets to this question about whether, whether virtuality is an empathy tool or not. So back in my twenties, in the 1980s, I used to speak with tremendous passion, um, and cadence about this idea that virtuality would be the tool for empathy, that you'd be able to experience what it was like to walk in someone else's shoes, that it would, uh, it would, it would help. And, um, uh, that rhetoric has still exists in the virtuality world. You'll run into that a lot in younger uh, VR artists and producers who will talk about how they're trying to make empathy machines. And yet, uh, just the opposite can be equally true. You can use virtuality to make people into jerks. And, um, you know, I, the question is, where's that knife edge of difference? How do you go down one path or the other? And um, I'm... <sighs> That's the most essential question, and I think um, I think we already know enough to say part of what the answer is. And, and you know, just the the first like rough summary of how you try to go down the better path is: people need to have a new kind of literacy where they understand the technology they're using, so they're not as fooled by it. So I I feel that anyone who had to at least make it through some essay writing class in high school, however miserable it might have been, is better prepared to protect themselves from a stupid essay as an adult, you know, just like it's not—it's demystified, you've done it. But we don't have that kind of literacy for the digital world. Uh, what we teach people is sort of rudimentary programming, which is so far removed from the way the digital world actually operates now with machine learning algorithms and all that, that it's essentially a black box to almost everybody. Um And then the incentive structure, if we have incentives for personal betterment of some kind, like you're making something people want to buy, uh, as opposed to just pure attention-getting or pure hiding from a mob because you're afraid you'll be clobbered, if there's just some set of broader incentives, I think a lot of people will find their ways to behaving better and being more decent. Um, so those, those are two things, literacy and incentives to really focus on.
2: I want to put a pin in literacy because I want to come back to it. But, but but behind some of this is another shift uh, that I've had in my thinking around VR that I just think would be worth talking about very openly, which is I think most of us who are not that familiar with the idea of it think of it as a bigger video game. That is certainly how I imagined it. And then I had my, my one and only experience with VR, which is probably about two years ago. I was at the Consumer Electronics Show in in Vegas, and I did a series of Oculus Rift demos. And a bunch of them were video game-like, and they were more or less what I thought they'd be, which is they were very cool, but they were video games. They were very powerful video games. And then there was one where I was just there talking to a little burbling, big-eyed alien that had some kind of facial tracking technology so it could look at me and it could change its expressions. And I was thunderstruck by how realistic the social interaction felt, even though that wasn't even representing a real person. And it was like in that moment when I realized why Facebook had bought Oculus, that this was going to be about social interaction much more than it was going to be about video games and and video game adventures. But this is very key to the way you explain it in your book. You you say the most powerful experience in virtual reality is recognizing another human being in it. Mm -hmm, And and mm -hmm. so I'd like to hear... Your thinking on on the ways it will evolve towards being a social technology more than just what I think a lot of people might assume, which is a successor to the PlayStation or the Xbox.
1: Mm. Well, I mean, the term virtual reality exists. I coined it specifically to differentiate it from what was called virtual world technology, which was the thing you're talking about of just one person at a time. Uh, experiencing some world that's presented to them, um, so uh, yeah, the idea of virtuality is that you have multiple people, and the multiple people are expressing themselves within virtuality. They're inventing what's in the virtual world as they're in it. That's the hardest thing to do because it's a, a user interface challenge. But that—that's the idea that you're co-creating a sort of a, a collaborative waking state. Dream with other people as a new kind of conversation. That that's the idea, and that's that is certainly the reason Facebook bought Oculus. Um, and uh, I mean, of course, the problem is that uh, Facebook is one of the worst abusers of the addiction manipulation um, paradigm for for making money online. And so, one hopes that they will transform themselves to have a different business model before VR becomes more widespread and much better. Um, also, very disappointing is that the uh, the founder of Oculus uh, was a very bad actor online who uh, um, acted in concert with, like, uh, Russian hooligans um, doing um, what he called shitposting about Hillary Clinton in general, in general, just trying to make the world nastier and rile people up because uh, of that feeling technical people have that everything that came before isn't worth saving and we should disrupt as much as possible. And um, so there's a kind of a human tragedy at the core of Oculus, and yet there are some amazingly wonderful, sweet Uh, you know, super well-intentioned, creative, wide-eyed, great people. You know, I mean, uh, there's fantastic people at Oculus. And so uh, one hopes that um, their better natures will come to the fore once it becomes more mature. Imagine we're 20, 30 years in the future, and we are looking back
2: at virtual reality that either went in a more humanistic direction that helped us make better decisions, be better versions of ourselves, or we're looking at one that went in a less humanistic direction that became uglier that that is sort of the worst of a twitter mob that we have the real trolls living under virtual bridges now what do you think will have been the decisions that separated one world from another
1: well i you know I, uh, there there are various points of view that could be really legitimate on this i've i've come to feel that the choice of business plans and and incentives are the most important underlying factors to, to the outcomes. Uh, so what I want to see is a world where Facebook changes to an entirely different model, where it, it's not dependent on what it calls advertisers, uh, and instead it's, um, it's uh, a uh, content bridge between humans who earn money over it when they're really good at making stuff. And uh, Facebook thrives through subscriptions and royalties on all the stuff it enables, but it's not trying to manipulate people anymore. It just gives that up. That In that world, I feel that virtuality would have a very good chance of being something extraordinarily beautiful that would help us understand reality better, be more sane. We'd find more depth and beauty in interpersonal connections. I, I think that that— but Let that, me push you. I just, yeah, I'm sure, sorry to sure. interrupt. Let me push you on why you have so much confidence in that world because
2: I, I'm not a huge video gamer, but— but I, I play video games, and that very much describes the PS4 or Xbox um, One model. You you pay money, you buy the games, you buy the system, then you pay a monthly fee to subscribe to the online world. And it is not my experience or my sense that those online worlds are particularly beautiful.
1: Yeah. Well, see, the thing is that those are not person-to-person environments. So what what we want in the future is something that's like a cross between Skype and and um Burning Man or something like that. It should be a way that people are connecting with other people in real time, but with the ability to make reality anything and, and a constant a, a constant redesign and, a, and with creativity being at the core. Uh, and the current um, markets, in fact, one of the things I'm critical of uh, in, in the way that a lot of the VR world has rolled things out is that it's followed the distribution model of Xbox or PlayStation, or for that matter, Netflix or uh, some other streaming service, where the idea is there's this catalog of things and you download something and then you experience it. And, And there's something just incredibly sterile and lonely about treating virtual reality that way. Because if you're doing it with a video game or a movie, I mean, those are intended to be from the start, they kind of make sense as something that someone uses that way. I mean, you're sitting there as the perceiver of it, but virtual reality is intrinsically this thing that only exists to the degree that you're a full participant really making it while you experience it. It just doesn't have the same power as a sort of a, 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 like a passive download. And there's also something so lonely about... I just It just makes me sad to think of somebody like on their own in a VR headset having downloaded something in their apartment looking around. I, there's It just... It 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 doesn't work for me. I don't like that feeling. But so and, let me. But I just yeah. want to.
2: The thing I want to draw out from you is why you have so much faith that the difference between the subscription model and the advertising model will lead to such different outcomes. And and the reason I ask very specifically is that both of them do have the quality, as I understand it, of creating a world where you want to maximize people coming back to it. I don't wanna say there aren't some differences because I've spoken in my own life about how an advertising and subscription models can can, can create different outcomes. but I wanna I wanna better understand why you think that choice rather than choices in the user interface or how things are moderated or a million other things that someone smarter than me like you could think of, why it is that subscription versus advertising model that feels so fundamental to you?
1: Well, I'm not advoca- advocating the subscription model by itself. I'm advocating person-to-person open commerce with everybody being a first-class citizen, and everybody being both a vendor and a customer in a unified way. So part of why I'm confident is we've tried it. There's been an experiment, and you might remember it. It was called Second Life. And so, did, did, are, are you aware of it? I'm
2: aware of it. I never I never participated
1: in it. So, Second Life was uh, not, did, it didn't use headsets because it was b- before that era. You would just look at the virtual world on the screen. But uh, you, you, you design an avatar for yourself and then other people did too. And Then you'd wander around inside this sort of huge territory that resembled Burning Man in a bit where each person had a bit of real estate and they would or virtual estate and they'd um, design whatever they wanted it and people would go around and visit each other and every major entity in the world government business public had a sort of a pavilion in it it was actually a, a pretty big deal and very present in in pop culture um, with a role maybe not quite as prominent as something like Twitter now but actually pretty prominent and then the iPhone came along and the iPhone just killed it because it, it just didn't transfer to the small screen experience. So uh, it that that really stole its thunder. But for a while there, it was really kind of a thing in the culture. And I was an advisor to it. And uh, part of what I, I did with it was uh, put an economy in it. So you could buy and sell virtual stuff, including avatar designs and even fake physics for how things moved and, and uh, architecture and just all kinds of crazy stuff, animals, pets, <laughs> I don't know. And... What happened is once there was a uh, um, commerce available, person-to-person commerce, and it did, there was this whole other revenue stream for the company, or an additional, in addition to the subscription fee people were buying and selling and we earned a commission and this this economy grew and uh the thing that i liked the best about it is instead of there being just a tiny handful of people who made all the money because they were the only ones who made content that mattered there was a kind of a middle class that emerged of people who were pretty good at making some kind of content or another and it was kind of a happy economy i mean you could see that scaling to a global level and having a decent society now, I'm not saying there weren't problems with Second Life, and anyone who is an avid user will um, easily be able to recount to you um, bad behavior, financial problems in it. Um, a lot of the tax authorities were not happy with us. Uh, there's, there are many stories I could tell about what was wrong with Second Life. But to me, the experiment fundamentally succeeded. You've brought up Burning Man a couple of times. Do you go to Burning Man? well not anymore it's just become too big and it's also become too classist i mean at this point there's like you either flying on a private jet and you're in this sort of isolated world of the silicon valley elite or you're you spend hours and hours uh trudging through the mud to get to it with all the the uh lumpen proletariat and i i i, could, I don't know it just doesn't appeal to me anymore but there was a time there was a little while when it was a uh, in the book i call it a simulation of a simulation it was almost like um, a simulation of what virtual reality might be like to a degree. When a- is the uh, last time you went? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, <sighs> I'm not even sure. I mean, certainly from before my daughter was born. So we're we're going back certainly fairly more than a decade. I should mention that the 2018 one um, is asking for people to imagine uh, how to live in an automated world with a lot of algorithms and their um, their call for art starts with a quote from one of my old books uh, from you're not a gadget really so, yeah what's, so, the, I, what's the quote well you'll have to look on their website I don't remember it but I I I, I, uh, I was just contacted by them they 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 uh, they want me to become involved for next year's. Uh, so they're 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 going to try to to steer the art for the 2018 one to address some of these questions we've been talking about. I suppose.
2: But so one way, one reason I think this is an interesting uh, experience for you is that here is something that felt to you like a like a virtual world requires a huge amount of engagement from the people who do it. Was for for many an a, a remarkable co created experience, and over time as it got bigger and it's still capped in how big it can be. You're here saying, well, it's too classes now. It's become too much about the money. And even and we're talking and we're having this conversation right after a conversation about why it would be good for, for these virtual worlds to have more commerce in them. So do you worry that the experience you've had with Burning Man um will be the one people have in virtual reality, which is that it ends up revalidating the the class structure we have?
1: Well, you know, I I uh, when we started talking, I, I was um mentioning the danger of of utopian mindset. So I, I kind of, um, I'm hoping that I'm adopting a sort of a homeopathic utopian approach here. I'm trying to keep my eyes on a vision of how things could be better, but also being a realist. So I, I have no doubt that whatever... problems people seem to bring to bear into every formulation of society that we've ever had will repeat in the future. I I just don't expect us to completely reform ourselves instantly just because there's a new medium. So, yeah, I would would expect there to be all these problems, but it's a matter of degree. I mean, the, the problem with the online world now is not that there are people who are mean. Uh, it's not that there's misinformation. It's not that there's manipulation. It's not that there's addiction. It's that the quantity of all these horrible things is so great that it overwhelms everything and it's destroying society and, and ruining us. It's a matter of degree. So I'm not expecting us to overcome these things. I'm not expecting us to suddenly enter utopia. All I want to do is beat back the bullshit enough that we have breathing room to, to at least have some some element of decency in our society and right now we're failing to do that Uh, a lovely point you make in the book is that the best part of a
2: vr demo comes right at the end and as somebody's given a lot of vr demos you say that the great trick is while they're under the headset to sneak fresh flowers into the room so that (laughs) when they finish they they take off the headset and they see something natural and you talk about how you like to take the the Microsoft HoloLens, which you work on, into the wilderness. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that moment of coming out and how being in a VR world changes your experience of the non-virtual world.
1: Well, you know, before we were, we were talking about how the sweetest way to, to experience virtual reality is to, to recognize that you are a center of experience, that your consciousness really exists and you're floating in there while everything else can change. Well, that applies to reality as well. Uh, so it's it's true if you put like a flower out in front of somebody while they're inside a VR demo and then they come out and they look at the flower, the flower suddenly pops into um, a vividness that's not typical we we take reality for granted we tend to just go through life without noticing how lovely and variegated and detailed and interactive and mysterious every little thing around us is we we can easily lose sight of just the miracle we live with moment to moment and so when you have when you compare it to sort of a digital world which is uh Less so. All of a sudden, you notice it. You appreciate reality. Like you can, you can look at a flower after being in VR for a while, or at, or at your hand, or if you dare look into somebody else's eyes, but be prepared for the consequences. <laughs> it's 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 intense. I mean, you really start to see things deeper. Why do you think that is? I don't. I think we just become. We fail to appreciate the miracle of life. You know, I think we. We lose our gratitude. Like I I just sometimes like if I'm if I'm stuck waiting for a plane or some or in some boring place or I'm stuck in a sterile hotel room somewhere. What I try to do is knock myself out of that and recognize there's no such thing as a sterile hotel room. Like just just appreciating the material, just appreciating the people around you, the process by which somebody made that hotel in a way that it doesn't collapse, but they actually went to the trouble of making it sturdy for you. Like, just there's so many things that are, are really these kind of miracles and trying to capture that vivid sense that reality is real and and the gratitude that comes with it. Um, I I feel like I'm sounding sappy right now. I don't want to sound like some new age person here, but there's there's this um, there's this thing you can get in touch with, and you can certainly get in touch with it without virtual reality. But but I think uh, I have found that doing it with virtuality actually really helps. Um, I, I think virtuality is, in a way, oh god, I used to I used to call it what was I I used to try to use terms uh, like elixir or meditation, things that come from sort of this the uh, the 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 uh, new age or spooky or, or spiritualist world. But the, it's like it's this thing in a high tech world that can just help you. Transcend a bit and notice what's going on. And of course, the real value is ultimately inside you. The gadget is just a gadget, whether it's virtual reality or anything else. But um, using it that way is just a particularly beautiful thing.
2: So, you are somebody who seems to me to try to be very intentional about technology use, who's both a participant and a critic. You have no social media presence whatsoever. You've mentioned you have a daughter. How do you raise her? How do you try to create her environment so that she's Intentional about technology.
1: Yeah, so um, I've I been asked that a few times. I'm beginning to think, you know, people should just ask her because, like, what do I know? I'm just the parent here. She's 11 and articulate. She could she could <laughs> give you an earful about this. Um, in I live, we live in the Bay Area, and her. Her best friends have parents who work at the various tech companies. You know, so uh, one of the things that's a really interesting social phenomenon is that the higher up somebody is in a tech company in Silicon Valley, the more restrictive they are generally about their kids' access to uh, internet technology. So we see a lot of like uh, <laughs> Google and Facebook execs who have their kids in Waldorf schools or sort of like really or like on incredibly strict regimes of when they can access things. And um, I talked about it with her, and even though she's only 11, I really feel that she has to start learning to make decisions. You know, I mean, I, I feel like if I just ordered her not to do things, it's just a setup for her to want to do them. And so I'll reserve that for things I actually secretly want her to do, you know, but, uh, I, I, I try to not be super strict. I feel like she has to find her own truth and find her own lessons. Now, if I, if I did see her falling into what seemed like an addiction cycle with something, I think I would try to intervene, but so far she hasn't. And I, I find that, uh, speaking to her honestly, um, and explaining to her what my concerns are, but then giving her a choice seems to result in her making remarkably uh, adult choices, you know. So, so far, I mean, she's only 11. I mean, talk to me in a few years. I'm I'm terrified of what's—I've <laughs> been joking that what I want to do is move the family to an Antarctic penguin research station uh, for like uh, maybe a decade and a few years uh, be, with, with her, you know. I, I don't know what to expect here, but so far, so good.
2: So then, let me ask you the the question we used to end the podcast, which is: What are three books that changed your life that you would recommend others read?
1: I always have trouble with questions of this kind because I think too hard about them, and because there's so many possible choices. Um, I know, in the I've often referenced uh, "Finite and Infinite Games" by James P. Kars, which uh, I find useful on various levels. Um, if you're engaged in something and you want it to be survivable. You want it to be an infinite game and not a finite one. And I think that that's a a very simple and useful principle. That that
2: book, I I hear about it a lot lately. Um, Do you want to just speak for a second about what is a finite game and what is an infinite one?
1: Well, a finite game would be like a single game of football or basketball. And an infinite game would be the overall field or culture of football and basketball, which can go on forever. But any particular game has to end. And so... um, what I have found is that many of the, speaking, using the term game broadly, um, a lot of the games we enter into in technology seem to me to have the quality of a finite game. Like if your goal is world domination, then once you dominate the world, the game is over, you know? <laughs> and so uh, thinking about what would constitute an infinite game is actually much more interesting because it has to be something um, where the goal has infinite depth to it, where there's some sort of infinite, unbounded evolution embedded in the idea. Uh, and so if the game you're after is, uh, let's say, deepening the level of meaning and connection and creativity between people, it seems to me that that could be an infinite game. That can go on forever. Whereas if what you want to do is sort of optimize people to maximize advertising revenues, <laughs> that's a finite game. You reach this optimum and you're done and it doesn't mean a damn thing. Finite games ultimately don't mean anything. So I, I, I've used it as a useful uh Lever to try to separate out different schemes and figure out which ones lead to something interesting and survivable and which ones don't. Um, so that's that's one I'd recommend. Was that clear? That was clear. Um, uh, I like Martin Buber's "I and Thou." Uh, Buber and my mother's father were uh, associates, and uh, this is a, a book about. Um, connections between people that transcend um, mechanical-like connections. And it's, an, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, and I think profound and clear. Um, but if you asking me for just three, this drives me insane because there's too many that are too important. And so it's, it's um, you've put me in an awful bind here. You've put me in a finite game, my friend. Why?
2: Well, I, I like to imagine <laughs> the real game we're in is the, the expansion of human knowledge. There's yes. just one move in it.
1: Ah, yeah, well, um wow, there's so many wonderful there's so many wonderful books. Uh, this whole project of making books has worked out well for humanity. Uh, it didn't have to. I mean a, a lot of the uh, there's a lot of cliche talk about the the Gutenberg uh press and how it democratized society and how we're repeating it. But the original Gutenberg press was just made to reprint this one doctrinaire thing, which was the Bible. And uh, it was once it started being used in other ways, and there were sort of weird books. Uh, the next book after the Bible was this thing called—I um, oh, forget the full name. It's this obscure book about entering a dream world, and it was sort of the virtual reality of the Gutenberg era. And, um, and, and that, that diversity, that opening up of things, is what made the, uh, the press into an infinite game instead of a finite one.
2: I'm not telling you I don't find that display of dazzling erudition impressive, but you're still going to have to name a third book.
1: Oh, God. <laughs> Give me some slack, man. You're Taskmaster. Let me. Um, oh, God. Um, well, I guess that art book that had the Hieronymus Bosch paintings when I was just a little kid, that gave me this sense that you could have wild imagination that transcends reality as given and still share it with people, that was probably a tremendously influential book on in my life. Joran um, Joran Lanner. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you israel Kleine.
2: Thank you to Joran for being on the podcast for for sharing all that with us. Thank you to all of you for being here to my producer Jillian Weinberger, the Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production and we'll be back next week.